And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow Americans, welcome to another episode of the Inspired Service Podcast, where we are putting a human face to public service, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Noah Scheinbaum, one of the co-founders of the U.S. Civilian Corps. I'm excited to welcome you all back to this special Independence Day episode of Inspired Service. Keep your feedback coming. We're really grateful for everyone who has reached out, who has listened to our first few episodes and shared some thoughts, what they like and what they would like. But now, before we go any further, let me introduce our guest for today, Amy Cloud. Her agency has been in the news a lot lately, so we're really grateful to be joined by Amy all the way from Bogota, Colombia, where she is a attache for the Customs and Border Protection Agency. Amy, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm very excited to be here. We're excited to have you, especially at a time when the border and immigration in America are front and center in the news. And I've got to tell you, before we dive into you and your background, I looked at a map right before this, and best I can tell, America does not share a land border with Colombia. So what is a Customs and Border Protection Agency official like yourself doing in Bogota? Thanks, Noah. That's a great question and and one that I do have to answer a lot. As you and your listeners may know, Customs and Border Protection, we are the Customs Agency, the Immigration Agency, and also the Border Security Agency of the United States. So all people, cargo, international mail coming into the United States via the land border, seaports, airports, and international mail facilities, we are that first line of defense that is taking a look at all of those people and goods coming in. So our international mission is really focused on working with our partner countries on improving the facilitation of trade and travel between our countries and also improving the security of of trade and travel between our countries. So as you can imagine, a country like Colombia, we have a lot of visitors, a lot of Colombians living in the United States, visiting the United States. And a couple of years ago, we were able to offer the Global Entry Program to Colombian nationals. And that, of course, um, is, is where folks who are coming into the United States from overseas have, a, have the ability to go to our trusted traveler lane, stop at a kiosk, avoid the lines, not have to see a CBP officer, an immigration officer on entering the country. And Gosh, I've been uh, I've landed at Dulles Airport outside Washington, D.C. with a carry on bag and and been outside at the curb within about 20 minutes after landing. But another dynamic with Colombia is the drug trade, the drug flow. It's a it's a drug producing country. And obviously, we don't want our uh, commercial trade with Colombia contaminated by that. So we work with the government on on projects on how to better detect contaminated cargo um, leaving Colombia, and also how to improve their, their customs and anti-narcotics police capabilities here in this country. Got it. So it's about trying to address the problem before it gets here to the United States, serving as kind of the first line of defense abroad and empowering partners so we don't have to wait until you know, people or goods or drugs get here to react. So now that we know why you're in Bogota, let's talk a little bit about what you did a while before you got there. In your first job, you were a teacher. 
Can you tell us what being a teacher for Teach for America has to do with working for Customs and Border Protection? Sure. Thank you. So I, I always say that everything I need to know, I learned from teaching middle school. I decided after college to, to join Teach for America because I wanted a job that, that again, brought me close to, to people and, and into public service. And while I had earned my bachelor's in international affairs, I wasn't quite, quite ready to go overseas. And so it was interesting to me to be be able to move to a different part of the U.S. Than, than where I grew up. I grew up in North Carolina, went to college in Virginia, and did Teach for America in um, rural Louisiana. And it was, a, it was really interesting to sort of learn about very much another culture, whether it's the French-speaking history of Louisiana. Also, the um, school that I taught at was physically located in a, in a housing project area, so a different socioeconomic group than, than I necessarily grew up with. But at the end of the day, kids are kids. And I'm, uh, I think my personality is suited towards teaching. And I really enjoyed the opportunity to, to be in the classroom, to, to give back to, to my community and, and impact another generation that perhaps didn't have the same advantages that, that I had growing up in a, in a fairly affluent college town. And I can say that today I'm in touch with many of my former students via Facebook, and there are other teachers, uh, including one who's a college professor, and you know they have families, and, and it's really exciting to, to see them um, grow and thrive and to know that you know maybe I played a little bit of a role in helping them get to where they are today. It's got to be an amazing feeling to watch the kids you taught develop in their lives. And the experience of teaching really is a public service, both in terms of the act itself and also in terms of how it builds empathy for people in other communities and other parts of the country and the world. And I can imagine that uh, the difficulty of connecting with and motivating children in a new environment is probably more difficult than working with, say, foreign governments on some of the programs that you've worked on. But you clearly enjoyed this experience because it wasn't your last in teaching. Um, you decided to continue on a teaching path, uh, this time abroad. And so can you talk about what motivated you to teach abroad this time? Sure. I was interested in, in living overseas, or I should say I had been interested in living overseas ever since college um, with my degree in international affairs going to the College of William and Mary, where I met a lot of classmates who either had a, a military or their parents were in the foreign service background, which you don't necessarily think of a, a pub from, from a public school in, in Virginia, but it really exposed me to all these different um, lifestyles that, that American families have overseas. So I was fortunate enough to get a job with an international school. These are the, the types of schools that um, children of foreign service officers or children of uh, locals within a country who, who their parents want them to, to have a good uh, English background or, or learn under the American system. There's a whole network of schools all over the world. So it was a great way to use my teaching certification that I had earned while teaching in Louisiana and have the chance to live in another country and, and really immerse myself. And, and I spent two years at an international school in Guatemala. And actually, I was teaching English to 
bilingual students, um, in some cases trilingual because there's a big Korean population. So it wasn't necessarily focused on English as a second language, but focused on the, the poetry and the literature and the writing skills that, that you and I would have received in a public school in the United States. What did you think about Guatemala? What drew you to Latin America more generally and Guatemala specifically? Well, I was interested in staying in the in the Western Hemisphere at that time, being, gosh, 23, 24 years old, still still wanted to be near my parents. Um, I had studied Italian as my second language in college, which wasn't necessarily the most going to launch me to the most countries. Um, so I thought, gosh, a place where I can speak Spanish or learn learn to speak Spanish and and be in the be in the Western Hemisphere. And to be very frank, they offered me a, a position, and it was uh, was sort of a, a, a good match at the time. Guatemala is a beautiful, very diverse country. A lot of native culture still survives there in the way that it does not in some other countries of, of the region. And I had a chance to, to travel around, uh, have a lot of visitors, um, and, and, and show them Guatemala as well. And to be honest, when I was there, we're talking about 14, 13, 14 years ago, the safety situation wasn't as troubling as it, as it is today. The world changes fast. And, and while I still go back to Guatemala and visit, I, I definitely recognize that I was fortunate to be there at a time when the security situation is better than what it is today. Yeah, you know, Amy, what strikes me in your answers and your background across the board here is this desire to work with people from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic situations, different cultures, whether that's in Louisiana or Guatemala or or really anywhere throughout the world. Now, I have to ask you, because the perception of CBP today is that it's an agency that keeps people and things out of the United States. It sounds like that mission is almost opposite what you have worked on and what you wanted to work on. So what drove you to work for Customs and Border Protection? Uh, absolutely. The, the answer I usually give, the short answer I give on that question is because they offered me a job. <laughs> so I, I knew I wanted to work Very at fair. the federal, <laughs> I, I knew I wanted to work at the federal government level ever since hearing at my college graduation, Brent Scowcroft, the, the former national security advisor was our, was our speaker and that, that idea of working in federal public service really stayed with me. So I went and got a graduate degree from the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and threw myself into enjoying that experience and, and participating in as many extracurricular activities as I could. I, I did an internship with the Department of Commerce in Washington, D.C. between my two years of, of the master's program but then I graduated and I had not done a lot of uh, job searching. So I certainly realized I needed to, to uh, I- increase my activity in, in that way and ended up at a, a job fair where a lot of different government contractors were um, accepting resumes for positions throughout the government. So it was sort of a, a fluke that, that I got a job with the contractor that, had, that was working with Customs and Border Protection and this was in 2007, so the agency was was still fairly new, and there were a lot of opportunities to, to work there. And I realized I, I really enjoyed the diversity of the mission, as I mentioned, customs and trade issues, 
people, movement of people, migration issues, security in, in a more general sense, and, and specifically border security, I enjoyed that mission so much that I decided to apply for a permanent position in 2008. So I've been with CBP as a federal employee for almost 11 years now. It's an interesting path, and it's not really all that uncommon in Washington. And yet, I think the way we as Americans talk about government contractors, especially the large defense contractors, isn't always in the most positive light, and maybe for good reason. A lot of the conversations around nowadays contractor capture, or these large organizations that win big, expensive deals with the government, and then they don't produce on time, they don't produce on budget, you know, all sorts of negative stereotypes or associations with these with these companies. So can you talk about your experience with government contractors, both in terms of in your time working with one, and then on the other side, in CBP, now buying from them? So if any of your listeners are aware of the Secure Border Initiative, it might fit the description that you just gave of an over-budget, high-cost um, project that the Department of Homeland Security undertook in that era. I was a little bit isolated from some of the more technical aspects of, of that program, but that is the office that I started working in. And for me, my, my perspective, my experience was it exposed me to what it was like to work in the government and in one specific agency and to see the, the different roles that, that people had within that agency. I was fortunate enough to be able to, um, to travel to the border and to participate in meetings on a variety of different topics that, that CBP um, was working on at the time. And that's what motivated me to make that a, a permanent position. So I do sometimes advise people who ask me, you know, why not try government contracting? It's a great way to, to see what different parts of the U.S. government are doing. Maybe you work for a company that has contracts with different agencies and, and you get a chance to, to just experience it, what, what's going on. And, and I always felt as a contractor and then in the federal position that I had where I was managing contractors, we were all trying very hard to do the best job possible to spend taxpayer dollars correctly um, but sometimes the reality of changing political agendas or thing, un unforeseen events um, sort of helps lead to that, that perhaps perception of the, <laughs> the over-budget, behind-schedule government contract projects. But, but my experience was, was very positive. What I heard from you is that it's around broad exposure to different departments and agencies in government and perhaps some of the roles within those different departments and agencies. So really good overview for someone who is perhaps earlier in their career trying to think about where they might want to serve and how they might want to get involved in government. Right. And for you and for you, that was that was exposure to, to some of the different functions of, of customs and, and border protection. And then, you know, I think you you hit on the the really important point early on, which was being a little bit opportunistic in your career and that, yes, we all have perhaps our well, some of us may have a dream job or an ideal place to end up, but you kind of go where the job is. And, and in some ways, you know, following who following uh, and getting in where you were offered a job was the launch pad for you to do all sorts of cool things later on in your career. So I think that that message should not be should not be lost in on our listeners. Great. 
Let's actually talk about some of the path you've taken within Customs and Border Protection. You started in, in D.C. in a couple of different functions, and then you went abroad, first in Mexico City and then in Colombia as an attache. For some of our listeners who may be newer to the government language and kind of shorthand, can you tell us what an attache actually does? Absolutely. V- very simply, the attache is the representative of whatever agency, in this case, Customs and Border Protection, the representative of, of my commissioner overseas. So within Mission Colombia and within Mission Mexico, you have attaches from the Department of Justice and their sub-agencies, other parts of Homeland Security. Uh, we have here the Department of Labor. You have Department of Treasury. You have a lot of different parts of the U.S. government that are not your traditional foreign service agencies that have decided to send representation overseas. And, and that title that, that we get, uh, for the most part, is, is attache. Just as the ambassador is the president's representative, I think of myself as whatever are the priorities of Customs and Border Protection in Colombia, my job is to help make those, make those happen, make those projects and meetings and discussions come to fruition. And on the other side, the Colombian government when they have an issue related to or a question related to trade, migration, or border security, they know they have a person within the embassy that they can ask that question to. And even the public, we field questions sometimes about whether it's global entry or a a visa, usually not a visa issue because that's handled by the consular section, but sometimes when there's a, a CBP nexus, we attaches around the world can represent the agency in front of the public. Yeah, that's really cool because generally the conversation goes when you want to talk about working abroad as an American, you can take a job with a company, you could take the foreign service exam, you could join another three-letter agency uh, that is less publicly known, uh, or or you can perhaps join the military. But what I'm hearing from you is that actually there are a lot of other agencies that do work abroad and work in embassies as well. You know, what have you found has been your experience working with folks from those other agencies internationally? Sure. Well, I, sh- I should first mention um, that there are four foreign service agencies of, of the United States government apart from the military. So State Department, of course, but also uh, USAID, the Agency for International Development, the Department of Commerce's Foreign Commercial Service, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Foreign Agriculture Service, if if uh, my education is correct, those are the four agencies that have jobs that are specifically coded as foreign service. And, and then mine is a civil service job based overseas. And one thing that I love about working in an embassy is the ability to walk down the hallway and, and collaborate with one of the representatives from the Department of Justice on a project, whereas in D.C. that might take weeks or even months to get meetings together, get all the right people in the room, come up with a plan. We are physically fewer people and physically very close to each other. So the, that, that level of, of collaboration is, is really, really impressive. Once a week, uh, the heads of the various agencies and the sections of the State Department, we, we sit together in a meeting with the ambassador where we're sharing information about what we're doing. So we might hear you know, oh, there's a conference coming up on a particular topic. And I think, oh, I have something I can offer there. Or CBP has something we can offer there. 
and it's much easier to, to make that happen at this local level. And I always advise people who are interested in working overseas, but maybe not committing their whole career to overseas work. I spent three and a half years in Mexico City. I can spend up to five here and, and then I'll go back, go back to the U.S., uh, which is absolutely fine with me. <laughs> Um, I always advise them to become experts in something within a particular agency, whether it's gaining that, that expertise about what that arm of the U.S. government does. So again, in my case, I was able to work with a lot of different parts of Customs and Border Protection, understanding what, how we operate in seaports, how we operate in airports, how we operate at the land border, before I moved into an overseas position and bring that knowledge to, to the embassy community. And also the ability to say, you're asking me something that I don't know the answer to, but I have a whole agency behind me that, that I can reach back to and that can support me. And so my, my advice is always look around the government for a topic that you're interested in. Maybe it's health and human services type work. Maybe it's you know, work within the Department of Labor and, and really get, get, get exposed to a lot of what those agencies do and then talk to their um, international affairs office. I think pretty much every, every U.S. government agency has some type of office that is managing international issues, whether or not they have people based overseas full time. Mm, so the headline is become an expert and other things will, will figure themselves out from there. The other message that I picked up on was We've talked in, an, in earlier episodes about the interagency clearance or concurrence process and kind of the bureaucratic structures in the United States government for getting sign off, not just as an annoying kind of procedural mechanism, but to make sure that the different stakeholders, the different interests and the different areas of expertise agree with a given policy or statement or what have you. And heard how in Washington that can be very time intensive, very difficult to do. It sounds like in a, a international environment, an embassy environment, it's almost like a open seating format at, at a place that you might imagine at, you know, Google with people rolling around on, on bean bags or bouncy balls. Where you just kind of roll down the hall and, and check in with your colleague. You've worked in both environments. What's it like getting sign off on something in D.C. versus internationally? Oh, goodness. I mean, I will say the interagency does function in D.C. usually very well, but it means leaving my office in the in the Ronald Reagan building. And this is what I was doing before I moved overseas, going over to State Department or to another agency, finding a time when the different uh, U.S. government agencies involved are, are available to meet or as you mentioned, getting clearance, sharing documents among different agencies. And, and just that physical effort and that, that time required is, is naturally more, more cumbersome. Whereas, as, as you described, I can walk down the hallway here, see someone and say, oh, yeah, I meant to talk to you about this, this, this. Or, I mean, this just happened to me a few weeks ago where the U.S. ambassador signed an agreement on behalf of CBP with Colombian Customs. One of the other agencies within the embassy saw that agreement, said, hey, that's, that's really interesting. Would you all be able to come and participate in a conference that we're hosting in a few weeks? I said, this, this absolutely lines up. Let's, let's make it happen. And I was able to bring a few experts from, um, from the D.C. area 
down to Cartagena to participate in this conference. So I, I, I love when a, when a plan comes together. It's cool to hear that there is there are real tangible examples of collaboration going on, whether it's at home or abroad in the in the government. You know, Amy, I want to I want to take I want to go back to something you talked about earlier, because you talked about having gone to Johns Hopkins, the School of Advanced International Studies, SICE, and how that network has, has helped you throughout your career. Many of our listeners may have not considered a, you know, a career in public service or a degree in public service. I'm curious for someone who hasn't gone to a SICE, maybe someone who's gone to just a, a more general master's program, doesn't have a graduate degree or you know, on, on the business side or, or something else. How would you advise young people considering a career or, or an opportunity in public service to to think about the the opportunities and the possibilities? Oh, that, that's a great question. And I know that the federal government has a little bit of a reputation of being very hard to, to quote unquote, break into. But what I always encourage um, young people who ask me this question is, again, to, to, to be humble and to be open. So you, you, the best job you may find may be a, a low level in terms of the, the tasks that you're asked to do. And their perception might be that that's not where they want to end up in their career. But everyone has to start somewhere. My contracting job, I was an administrative assistant to an executive within the agency. And, you know, with a coming with a master's degree or not, I thought I, I could do more than that. And I was able to do more than that by by doing good work and by proving myself and by listening and learning, not by having the, the title that I eventually wanted to get to from day one. So there are a lot of jobs in the, in the federal government that may not have that, that sexy title, but they're a great, a great way to, to learn a job, learn an agency, gain some skills, because we, we all have to start somewhere, even if it's not where we think we want to end up. Be humble and be open should be on a bumper sticker for all of us. <laughs> so, Amy, what I want to do now is I want to transition into the first round of, of lightning questions on the Inspired Service Podcast. We're going to try these out. Basically, what I want to ask you to do is just in a, in a minute or less, just a couple of words, give me some short answers to the following three questions. First, what does service mean to you? To me, service means helping others and looking around and saying, what, what can our government do to help U.S. citizens and to help citizens of other countries? As you think back of your career in government service, what's been the highlight? It's hard to select one highlight um, specifically, but there have been many occasions where I've been sitting around a table with colleagues from CBP, colleagues from other agencies, we're brainstorming, we have a problem set in front of us, and we come up with a solution, and it's, and it's implementable. And that, that feeling of, aha, we can do this, we can make this happen, and, and make our country better. Can you think about a low light? When was it hardest for you to keep going? I've suffered through I, uh, two government shutdowns, obviously the one this year and also in 2013. And those are moments where you question, gosh, what does the public feel about me? What does my Congress feel feel about me? It's a little hard to, to motivate, to keep going, to want to stay with government when you feel you're being pulled in a political battle. And so the final question of this lightning round is, 
what is it that keeps you going? The fact that I learn something new every day is what is what keeps me going. And the fact that I'm in a unique position to see different problem sets and offer assistance with those problem sets, whether it's offering assistance to the Colombian government or back to my agency at home that is trying to um, solve a particular situation. Thank you so much. That's that that concludes our lightning round. I'm going to ask you one more question before we before we wrap up here. I, it's been an interesting couple of years for for Customs and Border Protection, uh, and certainly, you know, I know we started the podcast talking about the border being in the news. I think a lot of our listeners, certainly, I'm curious to know what's it like being kind of in the limelight now. You're in an agency that is extensively covered in the media. You know, perhaps it wasn't as much in years past. You know, what's kind of morale like? What's it like being in on the inside during this time? That, that's a that's a great question. And I, I have to laugh because I think my mother recently read or heard a story about Indian nationals traveling through the Western Hemisphere on, on their way to the U.S. border. And because you know, that was recently covered in the news or, or just two days ago, it was an NPR story I heard about uh, Africans making that same route. And I said, yeah, mom, I've been working on this type of issue for uh, almost uh, or over 10 years now. <laughs> and she's like, how come you never told me? So it, it's the, um, the publicity, I think, has, has increased those conversations with folks working in the government and, and outside the government. And, you know, it's challenging because depending on what end of the political spectrum the, the person might be, they're either going to ask me a, perhaps an accusatory question or a very... Uh, supportive questions or, or comments that, you know, that, that reflect what, what's being talked about in, in the political dialogue. But I think it's good that more people understand the importance of our shared border with Mexico and the importance of having a, a logical policy or, or logical laws around who we want to come into our country uh, legally or illegally. And, and that's a message that I bring overseas, too, when we're working with our international partners on, on some of their migration issues. I say, we're not here to tell you who's, who you let in the door, but we'd like, you, we'd like to help you know who's knocking on that door. Because sometimes there are bad actors who are trying to enter not only the United States, but other countries in the region to, to do harm. And the more we can share information about those people, the safer we, we all are in this hemisphere. Everyone should want to know who's on the other side of their door. Amy, this has been such a pleasure. Before I let you go, any final words or advice for our listeners? I think my final words, especially if my parents listen to this, is I, I just want to thank all of the people who were with me when I was growing up and uh, gave me those models of public service. My, my dad was a college professor. My mom volunteered in, in the schools and, and later worked in the schools. I, I was a, a Girl Scout growing up. And, and all of those things and those role models around me growing up really put public service in my mind in a way that I, I never really considered a, a career in anything else. We all owe our priorities and values to, to our upbringing in some way. And so it's great to hear that yours have been so influential. Amy, thank you so much for your time and for being with us today. And thank you for all that you've done and continue to do on behalf of our country. I appreciate that. Thank you very much for, for giving me this opportunity and, and for your podcast and, and the message that you're sharing. All right. Thank you, Amy. 
For more episodes of the Inspired Service Podcast, please visit us at www.inspiredservice.org and subscribe on iTunes.